Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young. And Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that this podcast is for medical education purposes only, not to diagnose that thing on your eye. We're ophthalmology residents who figured that reviewing for boards, OCAPS, and clinic is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, review a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. This week, we're going over acute anterior uveitis. Hey, I have to interrupt with one editor's note here. You may notice the title of this episode is Anterior Uveitis Part 1. This episode actually got a little bit long, so we decided to split it up into two halves to make it more palatable. We'll continue with the rest of the episode, but we broke it down about the halfway point of our recording for this. That's it for our interruption. Back to the show. Okay, so if we're going to talk about uveitis, maybe we should first define what is a uvea. What is that? It is the iris, the ciliary body, and the choroid. So in this episode, we're limiting ourselves to talking just about anterior uveitis. So in future episodes, we'll talk about more intermediate uveitises, uh, posterior ones, and pan-uveitis. But in this one, just the anterior part, which means we're talking about inflammations of the iris or the ciliary body. If it helps to remember what is the uvea, so uva in Greek means grape. Uh, okay, interrupting for an editor's correction, uva is Latin for grape, not Greek. Back to the show. The reason is if you eviscerate someone's eye, so that means you take out the uvea, essentially. If you ever take a look at what a eviscerated eye looks like, it's the choroid with the iris, you know, in the anterior part, the ciliary bodies kind of tucked in between them. It actually looks just like a grape. So next time you eviscerate, take a look and appreciate so, yes, a fine vintage from a... <laughs> yeah, what, year, what year were you born? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. Okay, okay. It's not just mine as an example. <laughs> anyway, there are a couple ways that even before we talk about etiologies and the differential of what could be causing your acute anterior uveitis, a couple things in terminology and semantics about when you're reporting it to another provider or physician... First, of course, we've already said these are acute episodes that we're going to talk about today, but there are chronic forms of anterior uveitis. So if you just have one episode, of course, that's sudden, it's an acute attack of anterior uveitis. If it comes back, that's where we're not sure if you have to call it chronic or recurrent. The difference becomes whether the second or repeat episode happens within three months of the first. If it happens again within three months, then it's considered sort of the same smoldering thing, and it's therefore chronic. But if it takes longer than three months for that second episode or instance to come back, we term that recurrent. One other thing that to categorize different types of anteruveitis is whether it's granulomatous or non-granulomatous. Depends on what their carotid precipitates or KPs look like. Carotid precipitates is where the cell, the inflammatory debris from the uveitis, when it settles onto the cornea, onto the posterior part of the cornea. If it settles into these big, kind of greasy looking spots, we call mutton fat keratitis, because apparently that's what mutton fat looks like, then that's a granulomatous. If they're smaller, some people use the term stellate. There's also fine, where it's very kind of point-like, then, then that's non-granulomatous uveitis. Another helpful hint is if they have iris nodules, then it almost always means they have a granulomatous uveitis. If you see little lumps, uh, inflammatory lumps in the iris, then that's also granulomatous. 
And these distinctions become important because it informs your differential. Again, we're talking about inflammation. And as we've mentioned before, almost anything can cause your eye to become inflamed. So if there's any clue you can use to help narrow down your patient's specific etiology out of all that, it would be helpful. And granulomatous uh, presentations are usually the more, I'll call them severe, more like tuberculosis and sarcoidosis. Those kinds of the big ones you really don't want to miss would show up more commonly with granulomatous presentations. Just one more finer note on terminology. Some people use the terms iritis and iridocyclitis interchangeably. Just technically, iritis is something that affects the iris in the anterior chamber. If you broaden the term to iridocyclitis, that means it affects the anterior chamber as well as the posterior chamber. Remember, the posterior chamber is not the vitreous. It's a totally separate cavity. The posterior chamber is a space between the iris and the lens. Okay, so that's the definitions of anterior uveitis. Again, you want to define it in terms of its acuity, laterality, whether it's granulomatous or not, and its location, i.e. anterior, posterior, etc. Let's talk now about some signs and symptoms of what anterior uveitis, um, how it will present in a patient. So a common thing people will tell you about is that they're really light sensitive and they've got this red eye. That also hurts. So a painful red eye that's light sensitive will usually make you worried about an inflammatory uveitic picture. Of course, there's lots of people out there who will be happy to tell you they're light sensitive no matter what you say. But so make sure this is a constellation of three things together. Right. But to help us differentiate whether or not a photosensitivity should be concerning for a uveitis or an iritis, consider why one has light sensitivity with an iritis or uveitis. It's because the iris is a muscle, and when forced to contract, it experiences pain, just like any inflamed muscle would uh, have happened to it. So what that tells you is it's not just when the light is being shown into the eye that they become light sensitive. It's any time the iris is forced to contract, like if you shine the light into the fellow eye. That light in the fellow eye would cause pain into the eye in question. So if you think someone has iritis in the right eye and you shine light into their left eye, then the right eye should hurt. So this is called consensual photophobia. And that should be something you look for when someone has photophobia, figure out whether or not they have uveitis or iritis. You also have to do this before you put dilating drops in your patient because the dilating drops prevent contraction of that iris muscle and thus would help alleviate or prevent pain. So that's the light sensitivity. Tell us more about the redness, Andrew. That redness, more accurately, is, you know, you can have the whole thing being looking pretty red. But if it's red right around the perilimbal area, that's very suggestive for involvement of the ciliary body. That's called ciliary flush from vasodilation of the major arterial circle of the iris, leading to that perilimbal redness or even like a violaceous hue. Right, it can look pink or violaceous because it could be redness that's deeper in the sclera. And as we know that if it's deeper, the light will scatter differently. So it may not just look red, it'll look maybe like, you know, like violaceous or, or pink. Maybe if it's helpful, I think if there's some junior residents listening to this, they may think photosensitivity is very specific to iritis or uveitis. The light sensitivity can also come from any kind of corneal pathology, especially if there's an epithelial defect. So corneal abrasion 
can give you light sensitivity. Don't just assume because someone was punched in the eye that they have light sensitivity because of traumatic iritis, which is, um, you know, something could be on your differential, but also it could be a corneal abrasion or something corneal. As well as if it's bilateral, it could be something like a migraine as well. But that's kind of your anatomic differentiation for light sensitivity. Okay. So, you know, after, so those are some of the symptoms a patient may tell you about or what they may complain of coming into the emergency room of your clinic. The objective things to look for, you know, aside from the ciliary flush and overall injection Andrew talked about, are cell and flare. And those are the huge aspects to keep track of in a patient with anterior uveitis. If you've never really looked at cell or flare, to remind you, cell is just particles that are floating in the anterior chamber. They can be white blood cells as in uveitis, but other things can can cause the appearance of particles in the anterior chamber like pigment or red blood cells as well. And flare is when you look in the anterior chamber and it's like a headlight through um, through a fog. You can see and you can see the um, kind of the path of the light beam. That's what it looks like when you see flare in the anterior chamber. Now, to quantify cell, which is important to track how well a patient is responding or um, to therapy, you need to count the cells. So when you're writing it out, you can always report how many cells they have, you know, in a high-powered field, which is a one by one millimeter beam of light through the anterior chamber. So maybe someone has 15 cells in a high-powered field or five cells in a high-powered field. A way to abbreviate that and to help um, give you an idea what what is a major difference in cell, there's the standardization of uveitis nomenclature called the SUN criteria that help us grade the number of cell that we have. So if you're one plus, you've got a range between seeing 6 to 15 floating cells. If you're 2+, plus, it's anywhere between 16 to 25 cells. If you're 3+, plus, it's 26 to 50. And 4+, plus, way more than 50, you can stop counting. Uh, there's also a 0.5+, plus, which is 1 to 5, which most of us would just say trace cell. You know, that that's a lot of numbers to remember. One kind of easier way to remember it is just divide the number of cells you have by 10 and that'll get you roughly what the grade is you know so if they have 10 cells that's a one plus grading for sure if they have 12 cells you know it's about divide by 10 still about one so that's about a grade of one that's the easier way to remember that you can always look up the sun criteria to help you remember a couple other signs when you're using your slit lamp to look look at the edge of the pupillary margin to see if there's any posterior synechiae. You could also still find it at the iris insertion with uh, peripheral anterior synechiae, but to really look for that and make sure you haven't missed it, you'd have to do a gonio, or you'd have to perform gonioscopy to make sure of that. Sometimes back to the pupillary margin, that posterior synechiae can actually contribute to pupillary block or iris bomb even. So sometimes in a really severe case of acute uh, anterior uveitis, they can even present with uncontrolled intraocular pressure, which mimics like a angle closure glaucoma situation in your emergency room. Another thing that can happen is you can actually have hypopion in the anterior chamber just from the uh, severe, severe amount of cell that's depositing and um, settling in the anterior chamber. If you have hypopion and you're sure it's because of uveitis, it's almost always because of one of two diseases, either an HLA-B27 positive disease or Bichette's. So those are the two things to keep in mind. Also, in theory, it could be come from drug-induced um, uveitis. The, um, Bichette's and HLA-B27 are the two things that you want to make sure that you're able to rule out. We already talked a bit about keratic precipitates. They normally present in the lower half of the cornea because cells... 
um, as they cycle in the anterior chamber, will deposit in the, because of gravity in the anterior, um, sort of the lower part of the cornea. There are a couple conditions where they, they deposit diffusely. So that's something to keep atten- pay attention to as well, is where the cratic precipitates are depositing. And we talked about how the IOP can be elevated as far as like an angle closure situation. It can also be from trabeculitis, say if there's some viral cause in particular, herpetic usually being the culprit of um, giving you this inflammation that can actually decrease the TM's ability to filter out fluid. The IOP can also just be decreased too, so you never really quite know what you're going to get, and that's from ciliary body shutdown, also inflammation-related. Because remember, the ciliary body is one of the three parts of the uvea. So this episode's mainly about acute anterior uveitis. Just a few notes on other things that people with chronic uveitis can get, uh, chronic anterior uveitis can get. Even though it's an anterior uveitis, they can get cystoid macular edema. They can get epiretinal membranes, which is kind of like sinecki of the posterior part of the eye. They can get vitreous debris, and, and they can also get cataracts, either from the uveitic process itself, and also using the steroid eye drops to treat the disease can also increase the incidence of cataracts. Okay, so those are most of the signs and symptoms of acute anterior uveitis. Now we're going to try to highlight some of the etiologies. There's many, many, many different causes. We'll try to highlight some of the ones that are either higher yield or ones that we won't talk about in other episodes. And we've already talked about at least one of them if you refer to the ocular syphilis episode as well. Again, that can mimic almost any of these other things and you want to make sure you know how to rule that out when you need to. The first one we'll talk about is HLA-B27-related um, diseases. Classically, if someone has HLA-B27 and gets acute anterior uveitis, they get a unilateral acute anterior uveitis. There's a couple diseases that are associated with HLA-B27, which hopefully most of us remember from medical school. Andrew, do you want to help to remind us what the major diseases are? Sure. So they're ankylosing spondylitis, there's reactive arthritis, there's psoriatic arthritis, and any of the inflammatory bowel diseases like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Right. Just a couple things to note about those is we won't, we're not going to review at length like ankylosing spondylitis uh, in this <laughs> podcast. Uh, you know, we recommend our favorite podcast, Joints for Ears, to talk about these various uh, manifestations, but. A couple things to note. One, in reactive arthritis, we most of us, I think, use mnemonic, can't see, can't pee, can't climb a tree. For the, for the I1, you know, I think in, in, um, my learning from medical school, I understood it as uveitis is the most common presentation of ocular reactive arthritis. And it's actually not true. The most common ocular manifestation will be actually a papillary conjunctivitis. They may have no cell. They may have no anterior uveitis, though it's still possible in reactive arthritis. But keep in mind, especially for testing purposes or if you're called to help rule in or rule out a reactive arthritis, it's actually papillary conjunctivitis that you're looking for. A note about inflammatory bowel disease with HLA-B27. If they have HLA-B27 positivity and inflammatory bowel disease, then yeah, the most common ocular manifestation is acute anterior uveitis, like we just talked about. However, one subtle note is if they're HLA-B27 negative, they actually are more likely to get scleroveitis, which is a scleritis that accompanies the uveitis. Um, so that's a small distinction that not all IBD patients have HLA-B27 positivity, and if they're not positive, they're more likely to get scleroveitis rather than just isolated anterior uveitis. And that's it for anterior uveitis part one. We'll be back next week with anterior uveitis part two. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes4ears with the number four. 
You can also follow. Yeah, you can also follow us on Instagram, also at Eyes4Ears, as well as our website at Eyes4Ears.com. If you have any suggestions for the show or topics that you'd like to suggest, we'd love to hear them at, on our Twitter or on the website. If you'd like to support the show, it really helps us if you leave us a rating or a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, as you've heard us in the past couple of weeks, we have a survey that's going out that's currently active. You can find a link in the description below or anywhere that we post the podcast episodes. Um, there's a $100 Amazon gift card giveaway associated with the survey. So, you know, if you can answer, that really helps us collect data on what we're good at and what we can improve on. And that's all for this week. I'll let Andrew say goodbye properly next episode where we complete acute anterior uveitis. Hope you guys have a good week. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye.